0: Good morning again wow okay people you had an extra hour sleep Good good morning there it is now let me ask you a question so i'm going to tell you the difference between old and young right now okay okay how many of you use the extra hour to stay up longer raise your hand raise your hand that means you're young how many of us took the extra hour to get another hour sleep raise your hand some of them got two hands in the air there's something wrong with you people I'm telling you that means you're old sorry and I'm not telling you what I did but there it is well it's uh, our last installment on Jonah and uh, we're looking at Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 and then right down through um, chapter 4 verse 11 and um, we I've entitled this greatness in thralls and I'm hoping we'll get that understanding as we get ready for communion and by the way we're talking about communion parents um, grandparents guardians um, are, every now and then we want our children to come in because uh, they have their own um, uh, time downstairs teaching at their level Uh, but we want them to be a part of communion, and we want them to get the feel for communion. So uh, kids that are uh, grade three and up, uh, toward the end of the sermon, they're going to be coming into the auditorium, and uh, they're going to be joining you, uh, and they're going to, if you want, uh, because you know if your kids are prepared and ready to, if they understand communion, uh, to at least watch us uh, share communion together, Uh, but also uh, you may want your children to uh, be a part of the actual Uh, community experience Um, but we'll get to that in a bit but let's stand together and uh, we are reading uh, the book of Jonah I'm reading blue and uh, you are reading white and this is what it says and this is the last verse in uh, chapter three and when God saw what they did this is the people of Nineveh how they turned from their evil way God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it
1: but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster.
0: Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city.
1: Now the Lord God appointed a plant And made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant but when dawn came up the next day God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered
0: and when the sun rose God appointed a scorching east wind
1: which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle?
0: I'm really happy when you guys tangle up the Scriptures. It makes me feel so good because I do the same thing. Father, again, we are overwhelmed and amazed by the graciousness and the generosity and the extravagance of your love and how you showed that in Jesus Christ. And for the ministry and the work of the Spirit that takes all of that and makes it possible and applicable and available to our lives. And so we ask today as we look at this last installment on the book of Jonah, that you will give us a voice to speak. You give us ears to hear. You'll give us minds to, under, to, to understand and hearts to comprehend. But particularly, Lord, that you would give us the ability to live out as we go into our homes and our neighborhoods and as we go into schools where we learn and our workplaces and every place that we receive and buy and get our services that we would live out what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ in meaningful tangible ways. In Christ's name, we pray these mercies. Amen. Won't you be seated? Now as we look at chapter 4 of Jonah, one of the things that we see is the same thing, same uh, themes that we have been talking about over the last 4 weeks. But today, we want to look at three other things. First of all is this, is that confusion is not sin. Now, Jonah chapter 4 begins with Jonah's displeasure and anger. And the word anger appears in 11 verses, or rather six times in 11 verses. Now, on the one hand, I think we all know to some extent, at least to some extent, about the the dangers of anger. But on the other hand, I think that we also know that anger is not always a bad thing. Matter of fact, anger is a great and useful diagnostic tool. Somebody said this, that anger is our sixth sense for sniffing out wrong in the neighborhood. Diagnostically, it's infallible. And so when anger erupts in us, in me, in you, it usually is a signal that something is wrong. But there's something that anger does not do. It does not tell us whether what's wrong is inside of us or it's outside of us. Now, if you're anything like me, which I know you are, is that usually I think it's usually something or someone else. That's the problem, whether that be spouse or whether that be a child or parent or sibling or even God has done something wrong. Now, in Jonah's case, what looks, sorry, in Jonah's case, in Jonah's case, what is wrong looks external. But in reality, it is internal. What exactly is Jonah so angry about? And I think why he is so angry is because God did not do what God said he was going to do. And this is confusing to Jonah. He finally did what God asked him to do. And God did not keep his end of the bargain. So did Jonah feel that God had let him down? Did Jonah feel disappointment with God? Have we ever experienced disappointment with God? Have you ever? I have. I was in a church that I can't name and in a situation that I can't name, so I'm going to talk vaguely. And there was a situation in this church that had not been dealt with for 25 years. And it had caused this church to um, deteriorate spiritually and emotionally and numerically. And the church was in trouble. And I heard God or felt God direct me that I needed to deal with this situation. Matter of fact, the Lord actually spoke to me, not in an audible voice, but in my heart. And the Lord said this to me. I have brought you here to give this church a future. And in order to do that, you have to deal with this situation. And I was a full year, a full year praying and saying to God, I am not going to open the door, but if you open the door, I'll walk through it. And God opened the door, and I walked through it. And it was an ugly situation that had to be dealt with, and it was dealt with, but... It didn't work out the way that I thought it would. And I remember getting in my car the morning after the final meeting. And I remember driving in my car and for the first half of the drive I was angry. And I said to God, I said, God, you let me down. You asked me to deal with this. I dealt with it and it didn't work out the way that you said and I sent, spent the next half of that drive crying my eyes out. Now the point is that I don't, only God knows the end from the beginning, and it did work out well, and thank God that church does have a future and it is flourishing. But Jeremiah the prophet certainly did experience disappointment with God. In Jeremiah chapter 20, it says these words, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day, and everyone mocks me, for everyone. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision All day long. Now I think we all know that God's ways can be confusing. We live in a world where things happen that we cannot explain and we do not understand. That immortal eternal question of why bugs us. Why is it that an infant dies in its mother's womb? before it really has a chance to survive and live. How is it possible that a, a beautiful eight-year-old girl with a whole future ahead of her, as cute as anything, is playing second base and there is, a, there is a rainstorm that is developing miles and miles away and a fluke flash of lightning strikes her in the midsection and she's paralyzed for her life why do good things happen to bad people sorry and why do bad things happen to good people and we wonder where is the justice in this that's something that the psalms wrestle with in psalm 73 it says but as for me My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then there's this. Excuse me. That every six seconds, six to ten seconds in our world, every six to ten seconds in our world, A child starves to death. This is what got Charles Templeton. Back in the day, I remember reading his book called Farewell to God: My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And Templeton, if you if anybody knows who Charles Templeton is, he was a partner originally with Billy Graham. He was the better preacher. And he was a magnificent communicator. And when he gave the invitation for a response, the altars were full, but he had his doubts. And but the straw that broke the camel's back in, in regard to his personal struggle with God was seeing a picture one morning of a starving child in a newspaper. And he could not reconcile a God of love allowing something like this to take place. And he stomped off angrily and confused by the questions he could not answer. He's not the first. And he is by no means the last. And maybe we, maybe we too have our own questions our own situations, our own examples that just do not make sense. Why God will not and God does not and God did not act or do something about it. And these are all questions that create confusion for us that we really don't have any answers for, we don't have any really good answers for that really satisfy us or ease our pain. But confusion is not sin. Many times our issue with God when it comes to trouble and turbulence and brokenness is that he does not and he did not do something about it. But the issue for Jonah is the exact opposite. Jonah is angry because God did act according to his nature. And Jonah says, I knew that you would do this because you are gracious and you are merciful, that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from impending disaster to Nineveh. What Jonah could not get his head around is what Eugene Peterson calls, says, that God is not a celestial robot. And that's good news. The good news is that God is not an indifferent, immovable principle. God is a being. God is a person. And the universe that he created is full of possibility. It is full of freedom. It is full of surprise. And God is alive in and to all of this responding and redeeming and working continuously in it. But there's also this. God has not ordered the details of our lives that they will happen regardless, no matter what we do. We are people, we are persons, and God respects that. And we can change and we can respond. People can change and people can respond and God is always living in personal reaction. In present grace, he responds and he initiates. One of the hardest, most difficult statements to understand in the Bible that is said about God is this that God repented or God relented or God changed his mind. We see it in the last verse of chapter three. And when God saw what they did, what the Ninevites did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. And when the Bible says things like that, It is not suggesting that God has made a mistake or that he's sorry that he made it or that he is going to start all over again. What it is saying is this, that God moves with the situation. He redeems what has gone wrong. And so if 120,000 Ninevites can change their way of life, then God is willing to change his tactics in response to them. God is not bounded by a pattern. He is not committed to a blueprint. If people respond, if we respond in new ways to his presence, then he will respond in creative ways to us. But when we look at Jonah's issue, it is not the unresolvable ways of God that God did not act or would not act. But Jonah is angry because God did react and respond. And Jonah's theology is sound, but it is useless. I mean, Jonah says something very profound. Jonah knows the foundational confession of Israel. It's from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, where it says this, this is Moses, and God is talking to Moses, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But Jonah's theology, while it is sound, is useless. And it is useless because it does not affect his life. What does it matter? What does it matter if we know all the words of the Bible by memory? And it doesn't affect us. And it doesn't change our lives. What does it matter if we know all the doctrines and we know all the truths of the faith and our lives are not transformed by them? The faith we believe should be evident in the faith we practice. And there's also this. Jonah is self-absorbed and he is self-centered. Now, the language of the text actually reflects this. And what it reflects is simply this. In verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4 in the Hebrew text, the words, I, me, and my, appear nine times. And you and I... We cannot be self-absorbed and self-centered and serve the kingdom of God. And that is true for me as an individual, as it is for you as individuals, as it is true for us as a congregation as a whole. We cannot serve the kingdom of God and be self-absorbed and be self-centered. And then we are given this pitiful picture of a pouting prophet. This is what verse 5 says. And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So basically, Jonah went out to wait and watch the world burn. That's what he's doing. Jonah preached destruction and destruction it had better be. And we can't help noticing that Jonah is angry, that God is not angry. Jonah is ticked off Because God is not angry. And Jonah's pouting displeasure betrays his indifference to God. I mean, compare the pouting prophet out on the east side of the city waiting for the world to burn and the king of Nineveh inside the city in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, Jonah is a hypocrite of the worst kind. Confusion is not sin, but theology that does not change us and transform us is hypocrisy. And confusion is not sin, but a self-absorbed and a self-centered attitude is but we also know this that correction is not always simple it says in verse 6 now the lord god appointed a plant and it came it and made it come up over jonah that he might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort now it's interesting the words to save him from his discomfort is deliberately interpreted two ways first of all to shade him physically from the burning sun. But secondly, to deliver him spiritually and emotionally from his own self-righteousness. And there's this. Three times in three verses, 6, 7, and 8, it says God appointed. Now, this is not new in Jonah. We found out at the very beginning in chapter 1 that God provided appointed a wind, and then he appointed a storm, and then he prepared a fish. And in our text, God appoints a plant, he appoints a worm, and then he appoints a scorching east wind. And while Jonah wanted Nineveh to be torched, he himself was being scorched by an east wind. And it's interesting, the pattern. Jonah's mad, then he's glad, then he's sad, and then he's mad again. It never stops. And then it says in verse 10, And the Lord said, You pity the plant, for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And God's point is that Jonah's problem is misplaced pity, compassion. And if we learn anything from the book of Jonah is this, is that compassion is never secondary. It's never secondary. When I read the book of Jonah, it feels like God has brought Jonah and us to Nineveh so he can so he and us can experience what amazing grace looks like. But Jonah doesn't want amazing grace. Jonah wants total destruction. He wants the world to burn. Several years ago. How many of you have ever been to Mount Rushmore? You know what I'm talking about? You know the mountain with the four presidents? Anybody named the presidents? Never mind, it's not important. You know what I'm talking about. Well, anyway, the guy who actually carved those was a guy by the name of Gutzon Borglum. And there's a story that says that he was challenged to carve the American presidents on ivory toothpicks before this. And he declined saying this. No matter how exquisite or intricate, toothpick presidents do not intrigue. And then he added this. Littleness may pique our interest, but only greatness enthralls. And sometimes, like Jonah, our understanding of grace is toothpick thinking short sighted and small minded. Judgment. Destruction, waiting for the world to burn, giving people what they deserve is toothpick thinking. It's small-minded. It's short-sighted. But grace and mercy and undying love and compassion and giving people what they do not deserve is grand and big and generous and it enthralls There's a story, two stories in the Old Testament. And with this, I'm going to conclude. The first one is King David. In 2 Samuel 24, 14, and King David has sinned. And God says, I'm going to give you three options because you've got to be, there's punishment that must come. And uh, the three options uh, that he's given uh, is that one, he can fall into the uh, hands of a plague, uh, or uh, an attacking army, or he could fall into the hands of God. And, and David says these words, he says in, in 2 Samuel 24, 14, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is good but let us not fall into the hand of man. And then I love the story of Rahab. Now on Sunday nights, we have this interactive Bible study around 30 of us, and we meet in the uh, upper chapel on, at six o'clock, and we sing a little bit, and then we have this great interactive time together of studying the text. And one of the, <clears throat> what we're studying right now is the book of Joshua. And last week, Um, we were looking at Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua chapter 2 has one of my favorite stories, and that's the story of Rahab. And what I love about Rahab is the simple fact that the Bible says, and, and she's mentioned by profession before she's mentioned by name, that she is a, wait for it, a hooker. She's a hooker. Now, now, i got to tell you this, that in recent years, uh, some of the new translations, actually the NIV, the New International Version, in the footnote at the bottom of the text says that the word zana, which is the, the uh, Hebrew word uh, that's there used to describe her profession as a hooker, is that um, uh, they say it could be innkeeper. Now, I looked it up. I did the math on this, okay? And the word zana cannot, is nowhere interpreted anywhere in the New Old Testament or New Testament as innkeeper. It's only interpreted as a harlot, as a prostitute. Now, I think what's going on here is that some of the new um, scholars, um, they're a little bit uncomfortable. They're a little squeamish about the fact that God might use a hooker. And uh, they want to sanitize the text. But I love the story of Rahab. Because... If she's just an innkeeper, it's not quite as dramatic as being a hooker. And we all know what that implies. It's the oldest profession in the world, they tell me. See, an innkeeper just messes up the story. But a hooker. You see, that's all about grace. That's all about the glory of God. And the other thing is this, <laughs> that God would use a hooker to deliver his people, and that blow you away. But if you read the New Testament, in which we will be doing in a few weeks, and you read the story of Jesus... And Rahab the Hooker is a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. You see, an innkeeper in the line of Jesus, who cares? That's toothpick thinking. But a hooker in the lineage of Jesus is about greatness, the love, and the grace, and the magnitude, and the grandeur of the love of God. Greatness enthralls. And as we come to communion today, friends, let's not waste our time on toothpick thinking. But let's take a moment and reflect in the rearview mirror, because let me tell you, I've never been a hooker. But Rahab is me, and Rahab is you. Rahab is us. Nobody deserves the grace that we receive, do we? Nobody. So when you come to the table today, let's come and let greatness enthrall us, and let's not be toothpick thinkers. Ushers, would you get ready, please? I've asked the ushers this morning to take their stand at the front again. And uh, I'm going to get you to come out of your seat and then come down and get the emblems. And because I just believe that, um, that communion is, uh, is um, an act an act of remembrance. And so I'm going to ask you musicians to come. And Carla, I think you've got a, a song or two. Um, and we're going to sing... But just as the ushers are getting in place, I just want to pause and just pray right now. Father in Jesus, glorious and generous and extravagant name, we come to this table and we are so unworthy and we're so undeserving, but your grace, it just blows us away because you you are magnificent you are marvelous your faithfulness is overwhelming you are such a good God so thank you for the Davids and the Rahabs but thank you for the Todd's and the Carla's and Ruth's and the Kevins and every name that is named in this room and for every person online, may we come to this table today with such gratitude and with such sense of greatness that we are enthralled by the grandness and the beauty and the wonder of your mercy and of your love and of your grace. Speak into our hearts today, Lord, for any person in this room or watching online that has not said yes to your grace. It doesn't matter who we are, what we've become, how far we've gone, doesn't matter. Your grace says you can come home, you can be changed, you can be redeemed. And so, Father, I pray this morning for any Christian in this room that's struggling with sin and, Lord, are not sure today whether they should take communion. Oh, sin is such an easy thing to deal with. You said that if we confess it, that you will forgive us and cleanse us. And so, Lord, right now in our seats, in this room online, we can just say, Jesus, I'm sorry. I confess my sin, and I ask you to forgive me and wash me yet again in your grace and in your blood. And then it's over. So, Father, we give you praise and give you thanks. In Jesus'
1: name, amen.